You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now... Here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. Happy hump day, everybody, and welcome back to One Kick-Ass Podcast. Today, we have a BS session with a gentleman named Wade James from Pennsylvania. Now, I know what you're thinking. Wade James. That name sounds like he could be a porn star or a reincarnated cowboy from the Old West. I... You know, I'm not going to tell you if that stuff is true or not. However, you listen to the podcast and you're going to find out a really cool uh, podcast today. Wade talks about uh, some of the short films that he's made. He's going to talk about growing up hunting public land in uh, Pennsylvania and a whole bunch of other stuff that we cover. I got a lot of energy today. And the reason is, is I'm very excited to announce a new partner of this podcast. And before I say who it is, I want to say that I have been using this product, and I can honestly say this, for 10 years. I, I first purchased my Ripcord Arrowrest in, I think it was 2006 or 2007, when I bought an entire brand new setup, a brand new bow. And since that day, I have dropped my bow out of a tree. I have drug it on western hunts. I have gotten sand in that rest. I've gotten mud on that rest. It has frozen. It has thawed. It has been in hot temperatures. It has been in cold temperatures. And it has functioned flawlessly every single time I have launched an arrow out of that site. And uh, because of that, I would be hard-pressed to ever trust or even use another arrow rest and that's why i 
I feel that Ripcord is a perfect fit for this podcast because it is a product that I believe in. It is a product that I've used for several years. I'm familiar with it, and it's just an overall kick-ass product. And uh, throughout this year, you're going to be hearing some commercials from Ripcord um, that is, you know, some of the backing behind the reason that I, that I use this product and you can gain some more information there. I think uh, the first thing that we all need to do is go and check out the company, check out their website at ripcordarrowrest.com and uh, check out their arrow rest, man. It, it's a, uh, it's a drop away rest and it comes, they have a couple different SKUs that you guys can look at. Uh, do your research I myself am a huge fan of this rest. You know, take that how you want because obviously they are now paying me to represent that company. But honestly, I've used it for 10 years now and it's just a badass product. RipcordArrowRest.com. Go check it out. Now, today, let's get into the podcast. I don't know why I'm talking really slow right now. That was a horrible transition, but let's get into today's BS session podcast with Wade James from Pennsylvania. All right. On the phone with me right now, all the way from Pennsylvania is Wade James. How are you doing today, Wade? I'm doing good, man. How are you doing today? Hey, I get, I'm getting ready to do a BS session. So I don't, I don't have anything planned. We're just going to BS about hunting and hunting-related things for uh, the next hour. So does that uh, sound good to you? I, I think I can handle that. Perfect, perfect. <laughs> but the first thing I want to talk about is your name, okay? And I think I may have mentioned this to you a little bit at the uh, ATA show when uh, we first met face-to-face. You're, you have a kick-ass name, all right? So when I... <laughs> When I hear when I hear the name Wade James, I think of two occupations. One is an adult film star, okay? True. And, and yeah, the, I and, see it. Yep. And the other one is a like an a, an outlaw from the West. Are you any of those things? I am actually. <laughs> um, I'm actually an adult film star who plays a cowboy. So it just it just fits a hundred percent. Like you, you couldn't have hit the nail more on the head with that, you know, your observation. <laughs> I'm an adult. Uh, the funny star. thing is, I'm like six foot tall, like 165 pounds. I'm like a beanpole, and I have like the toughest name in the world. And then I'm like not the toughest guy in the entire world. So <laughs> I think my parents knew that going into naming me, and just kind of set me up to at least sound tough, which is kind of cool of them. Right. Well, we, at least it wasn't the opposite where you were just like a just like some regular build guy and they named you a Sue, right? And then you just yeah, got your right. ass kicked for no reason. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh man. Well, you're a you're a bow hunter, right? I am a bow hunter, yes. Perfect, perfect. And I think uh that's where we're gonna start today is I guess before we get into that, Wade, why don't you tell people where you're from in Pennsylvania, and what do you do for a living? Okay, I am from Johnstown, Pennsylvania, which is about an hour and a half east of Pittsburgh. Um, the only cool things that came out of Johnstown were the movie Slapshot oh, and the world's steepest vehicular incline plane. 
So other than that, uh, we were like, yeah, that's pretty much it. We were the steel mill capital of the world, basically, for the longest time. And then once the steel mill and the, the steel industry kind of went and took a downfall, basically the same story that was in the movie Slapshot. Everyone was worried about the steel mills closing down, and they finally did. And now we're like one of the top 10 poorest towns in Pennsylvania. Oh, wow. But, uh, yeah, I grew up here. It's just a small town. Everyone knows everybody, and I just love that. So I grew up here. Um and what was the second part of the question you asked me? What do I do for a living? That's right. I am a, I'm a full-time videographer. Um, I was an excavator for 10 years in a family business, third generation, and kind of got tired of shoveling crap out of a ditch and, you know, working water breaks on uh, Christmas Eve at two o'clock in the morning every year and just found I had an opportunity to kind of live my dream and pursue something I was super passionate about and try to make a go at it. So we're doing this. This is my third year full time now. Uh, I work alongside of my wife, who's a photographer, and we do everything from weddings and baby sessions, clear through to the hunting stuff and fishing stuff, and it's just awesome, man. I mean, it's it's not really even a job yet, even though it is at times. But I went from working, you know, forty, fifty hours a week and just grumbling and hating waking up in the morning, knowing that I was going to go out and my machine was going to break down or I was going to break a water line or something dumb like that. And yeah. now I get to hang out with my kids all day and kind of work the weekends and edit when they're napping. And so far, so good, man, just riding the wave out and uh, loving it. God's really been blessing us the last couple of years with this. So we're just going to keep trucking with it, man. Heck yeah. I'm definitely, you know, I see guys like you uh, and, you know, other people who are doing the same thing where they're just like, man, you know what? screw this nine to five thing. I, it's, I I don't want to waste my life doing that type of work. And I'm in that, uh, I'm in that cubicle life right now myself. And I look to you guys and, you know, some, some of the other people like, you know, Mark Kenyon from Wired to Hunt and, you know, man, I, I am, my goal is to someday start doing what I love to do and get out of that, get out of that. And, uh, basically it just gives you nothing but options after that. It does. You know, I'm, I'm going to be completely honest with you. It is scary as heck because, I mean, like I said, I'm third generation. So mm-hmm. I knew that I have financial, health care, whatever, security for the rest of my life. And eventually I would step into the role probably as the, the owner of the business and kind of I grew up doing it. I mean, I was running machinery off the record, you know, since I was about eight years old running backhoes and, and uh excavators and stuff like that so it kind of was like ingrained in me and that was just kind of I felt like that was what I had to grow into and I got to that point and man just when your heart's not into something it's not that it's not that's a bad career and the people that do that I mean it's hard work and I loved it I loved running machinery but it just gets to the point where man if you don't love getting up every day and I mean you're it, it, it reflects in your marriage and how you treat your kids and you come home like a bear with a sore butt man it's just life's too short to kind of just stick it out and hold on to security you know um sometimes the the most blessings that you will get are the times you step out on a limb and just trust your gut and trust god's calling if that's how you follow and that's that's my wife and i are, are firm believers in god and calling for his plan and man just stepping out was scary as heck not knowing what to do with health care and being self-employed and how taxes work and but you know you kind of just jump into it 110 percent and give it your all and know you have to work your butt off to to do something but you're going to benefit from it it's something that's your own something that's that's tangible that that you've done and uh it's it's a great feeling even though it's scary at times so awesome that's awesome yeah yeah and that's definitely something that uh i myself when i do decide you know a conversation with my wife and take that 
take that 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 initial jump. I mean, you have four kids, right? Yeah, I just had our fourth kid about two and a half months ago. So, so that was yeah, probably interesting. <laughs> that's probably the first thing that was running through your mind, like, "Hey, man, I don't want to screw my kids," right? Yeah, for sure. It was just like, man, okay, I have to make sure. Like, I'm, I'm a planner. I'm an OCD worrying planner guy. Like, I have to have everything formulated ahead of time. And me, it was like, okay, um, how am I going to make enough money to support four kids working in the poorest town in Pennsylvania doing videos? Right. And honestly, that's three quarters of the reason why the, uh, my majority of my business is weddings because it's just one of those deals where my wife and I can work together. Um, I mean, it's it's good money, and I mean, it's stressful. I honestly think weddings are more stressful than hunting situation stuff because <laughs> you know, besides being charged by a bull moose, if you've ever been charged by a bride on her wedding day, it's scarier. <laughs> I'll, I'll promise you that right now. So, uh, oh, but I mean, funny. that's. I, one of those deals where with the videography end of things I can kind of play both sides of the field I can play the wedding videographer guy that dresses up and does stuff on the weekends but then I can take that same camera gear and throw it in a tree stand with me in the rain and drag it through mud and it's fun because it's never the same thing which is nice and I enjoy that about it right and we're going to touch up on uh, some of your video stuff uh, later but I want to talk to you about growing up in Pennsylvania as a bow hunter now when when people talk about the worst states to be a bow hunter in or a hunter period, they talk about Michigan, they talk about New York, and they talk about Pennsylvania. And you for know, sure, just the stereotypes of man, lots of people, not a lot of public ground, small parcels if you do get access to private. So I guess talk to me a little bit about your upbringing in Pennsylvania as a bow hunter. Okay, well, I started off basically 12 years old. I skipped my first travel hockey game for the opening day of uh, rifle season and uh, ended up being lucky enough to shoot my first deer, and it was, a, it was a buck. But in Pennsylvania, man, it was just one of those deals where if it had horns and it was over three inches, you were stoked. So I ended up, my dad put on a drive, because that's pretty much how you hunted Pennsylvania rifle season. You put drives on. And you post up somewhere, and my dad and great-uncle put on a drive, and I was sitting with my grandfather. I had a bunch of deer run across the tram road. I pulled up, saw brown on the scope with a 30-30 with open, or 30-30 with open sights, and then the scope on top. Saw brown, shot, and walked up, and I was like, holy crap, I shot a buck. And you would have thought I was like the president <laughs> of the United States that day. I was so pumped. I had probably four-inch spikes on it, and it was, it was a big deal, man. I actually got benched for the next probably two games in my travel hockey stuff just because I skipped the game to go hunting. Yeah, but uh, that kind of started my obsession with it, man. It just uh, it was always kind of ingrained in you. The first day, you know, the weekend before, you got your gun, you got your bullets, you got your stuff out, you let it air out in the back porch. We all shot our guns in, you know, the week before season, and then you just went out and Orange Army, man. You started driving woods and shooting whatever ran, and that's that was the upbringing, and that's just kind of how Pennsylvania was. I mean, it, there was definitely people that were more advanced in, in their management processes. But really at that time, that was what you did. And you were pumped to get whatever basically bone you could on the head. If you, if you shot something with horns, you were like, man, this is awesome. I mean, I've, I've rocked it this year, but, um, I actually didn't even start archery hunting until I would say I was 14. Okay. Yeah. Probably 14 or 15. And the reason with that was I had a 270 that my pap gave me and the bolt kept getting sloppy on it. So I have to carry a ramrod with me to eject the shells out of the barrel after I shot. Okay. So he 
gave me a 300 mag. And when I was, you know, 13 years old, I was probably hundred pounds soaking wet. And I shot one of my nicest bucks that year and woke up laying on the ground, looking up at the sky with my nose bleeding all over me and I couldn't find the gun. So <laughs> it rocked me pretty hard, broke my nose and I got really, really trigger shy from that oh, point no. on. So I had to shoot for like, honestly, a good year, year and a half of the 22, just planking to not flinch. It was a total mental thing. I just thought every time I pulled a trigger, I was getting cracked in the face with a scope. So I ended up, the neighbor gave me one of his son's old bows and started kind of walking me through how to do, you know, how to shoot archery. And that was kind of just out of necessity. That was how I went and fell into the archery world. I just basically was scared of shooting a gun for a little bit and started planking with a bow and getting more and more accurate with it. And I just fell in love with the time of year that you are out as opposed to freezing your nuts off during rifle season and right. seeing 1600 guys and your dad, you know, and this other guy getting in fights because he walked in on you and they're screaming at each other. It just, it, it's, it's ridiculous how crazy Pennsylvania season can get during rifle season. So, um, I found there wasn't a lot of people that were really into archery. The woods were kind of wide open and as a public land hunter, my, my backyard is probably about 5,000 acres of state forest. Oh, nice. Um, it was public, it was public ground at the time. So I could literally walk out of my parents' house into the woods, hit the power line. And I had full rain and pretty much you knew you weren't going to see another guy during archery season. So, um, oh, that's, that's how my, my, my archery career started really. And it just kind of took off from there then. Now who, who ended up getting you into bow hunting or I shouldn't say bow hunting, but hunting first, then what did I should say, who got you into to hunting in general? And then did you have help from anybody transitioning into uh, bow hunting or was it kind of teach yourself thing? Well, my dad and my grandfather were really, really big into hunting. They were only rifle hunters my whole entire life. We were all rifle hunters. Nobody in my family hunted archery. And uh, when I, like I said, my neighbor that gave me the bow, he was an older fellow that's actually a, a gun collector that's good friends with my grandfather and my great uncle and my dad. He lives probably about a mile down the road from me. He knew that I was having trouble and he had this old bow that was his son's and his son moved out, got married, moved away. And then he had me come down to his house and shooting and basically taught me how to, you know, line up the peeps site with the site housing and put your pin on what you're going to shoot and just release. So that was pretty much all the instruction I had. And I would just plink in my yard basically at uh, a bag target or a, a 3d target and then got a little bit better and started picking apples off my paps, uh, apple trees in the yard and setting them on the 3d targets back and shooting arrows and trying to hit that apple. And we'd actually, we had a golf cart that my dad, <laughs> it was like a redneck thing. We had a golf cart that we camoed out and we would just ride around like to get the mail and stuff. Cause we live in a pretty big field. So, uh, we, my one buddy and I, I used to take turns strapping ourselves into the, uh, where you put the golf bags on the back right. and being at full draw. And we would drive through the yard and practice shooting while we were moving at the 3d targets. So I wouldn't condone that or, or tell anyone <laughs> to try that. I it's super, super dangerous, but you really kind of got good at just goofing off and putting yourself in weird situations and just making a shot. So in the woods though, it was all basically trial and error for me. I didn't have any mentors and I was old enough to hunt by myself by that point in time. And it was just go out there and try to calm the nerves enough to shoot a deer. Right, right. Now, I know why you did that uh, golf cart thing is because you wanted to be an Indian deep down inside. You know, they they in the movies, they would ride the horses and they were yeah. shooting bows from a moving target or, you know, a moving horse. And so you were just trying to replicate that. Yeah, that's actually what started my, you know, adult 
film star cowboy career because I didn't actually have clothes on at all. And, I, and I'm totally joking. Just but, a loincloth. <laughs> yeah, just a loin. I had a loincloth on. That's all your shoes off. So nice, nice. <laughs> now, your first couple of years jumping into the timber um, as a bow hunter. Tell me, tell me about those. I mean, was it? I have no clue what I was doing. Did you look to any books or any type of hunting television shows or magazines for, uh, you know, for information or did you just learn by trial and error? The first few years were all trial and error. Actually, the first year that I started archery hunting, it was one of those times where I probably should not have been hunting with a bow yet. I should have been practicing more. Right. And that's what I try to, if I get new people involved in archery, um, I try to tell them you have to shoot for at least a year. I don't care if you start in the middle of the summer before before season comes in. I want you to literally shoot for a year first to know that, you know, you know your distance, you know what you're doing, and there, you have no idea what's going to happen once nerves kick in. So right. you need to be as as confident with your equipment as you possibly can be. So the first year I shot for a couple months and then went back and literally sat on the ground underneath that oak tree overlooking this little crabapple flat. And I'll never forget, I shot a, uh, a young doe and ended up hitting her right in the neck. And I watched that deer run away with the arrow sticking out of its neck, and I never recovered it. And that really ticked me off because before it was, you basically put your crosshairs on an animal, you yep. shoot it, and it's dead. Right. And I went through, that. basically the deer stepped out. I had enough time to draw back. I mean, it couldn't have been any more than 20 yards, and I put a terrible shot on it. And that really bugged me. Cause I was like, if this is what archery hunting is, I don't want any part of it anymore. And I, I fought a long time with that, with making sure that, you know, getting over that first experience with the bow that, you know, I don't want to do this again. So that's what just pushed me to, to basically shoot and practice and extend my range. So those closer shots, I wasn't going to miss the deer a foot high and, you know, a foot left. I mean, I was shooting an old PSE Carolyn Truger with a, some goofy release. I didn't even know what it was with, you know, old Eastern aluminum arrows. And it just, I had, I knew nothing about it other than this is what you do. And then nerves kicked in and boom, I hit that thing in the neck and uh, I almost ruined archery for me until I kind of just forced myself to not hunt with it again until I knew that I was going to hit where I was aiming with it. Right. Um, so basically about a, another year or two of that. And then I kind of got into starting to see some hunting TV. I never had cable at my house. So, no. Um, it turned into like just buying a, a DVD at Gander Mountain and ended up being, you know, the Drury's the first, uh, when the dream season and stuff was starting to come out. So, um, that was kind of the first thing with learning other things other than just going out in the woods and shooting at a deer, like learning how they were setting stands or especially camera stands. Cause I've got into filming about the same time as all this. So, um, really it was mostly self-taught stuff and trial and error and screwing up and almost losing love for archery right off the bat. And then it was getting pieces of information from DVDs that I would buy basically to start. Nice. Nice. So tell me a little bit about the area that you hunt. I mean, obviously it just gets blasted during, um, during rifle season, but you know, you transitioned into archery. Are you, were you still fighting a lot of people on the public ground that you hunted during the archery season? What were the numbers like as far as deer or did you see any, what, I guess back then, what did you think a good buck was as well? Fill us in on that stuff. 
Oh, well, back then, if I shot anything that was over a four point, I was pumped. Nice. So basically the hunting pressure behind our house, um, was pretty much non-existent during archery season. Um, the guys that did hunt archery had spots within a hundred yards of their backyard. So the neighbors down the road would be able to walk into that same patch of woods, but straight down from their house. And they'd go back to their one stand that they'd had for years in that same spot. And you never had to worry about it where I was a, a young, you know, kid with more balls and brains. And I would feel like I would walk back in as far as I could. Cause I knew those spots for rifle season where you would constantly see deer on drives and where they'd be down closer to the Creek. And, uh, it was one of those deals where I would go back in a little bit further and I would try to, you know, look for some scrapes or look for some rubs and just set up in that area. But I mean, it was state land and it's, it's huge woods. It's big, big rolling timber hills with ravines and, you know, drops off almost a one-to-one slope to the creeks and then back up the other side. And it was just one of those deals where it was very, very hard to pattern anything. So you could sit there and hunt a scrape or a rub all year long and maybe never even see a deer, but the herd was good. But you just, I always had that rifle mentality that if I'm not seeing nothing, I should probably be walking. So it was really, really strong. It was a big struggle for me to learn to sit and be patient and stand and kind of start your homework early in the year to find out where things were. But um, as far as food sources, it was basically looking, looking for oak trees and acorns dropping. I mean, maybe a little occasional crabapple thicket or get outside of the mountain laurels, like toward the creek where you knew that they would be bedding at. But I was still young and I really didn't even start paying attention to that kind of stuff until after years and years of really not seeing much during archery season, I'm like, okay, I got to figure out another way to do this because I'm wasting, you know, two, two months of archery season, just trying to find a freaking deer to shoot at. And it, it was really frustrating. And it's amazing. That I even stuck with it as long as I did to get to the point now where I, I, not that I'm an expert, but I know a good bit of how to hunt certain areas. And, um, just, I mean, it was, it was really frustrating. This state is a very, very hard state to hunt unless you have a rifle when you're pushing deer and it's gotten a lot better with the antler restrictions and stuff now. But I mean, back then, if, I mean, I think the first, the first buck I ever took, um, with a bow was in 2008. And that was the first time I actually hunted out of a tree stand. So that you put that also against your odds because you're hunting on the ground with a compound bow, you know, trying to hunt big woods and see deer and not get busted. So, um, it was a, it was a seven point and I shot it, it came in, it was 52 yards and I shot it in the liver and it died about ran about hundred yards and died. But that I was like pumped because it was the first time I hunted out of a tree stand. I was in a climber, like probably 30 feet off the ground. I was scared crapless, no safety <laughs> harness. And, you know, I shoot this deer at 50 yards. With a, I think it was a Hoyt Vectrix that I had at the time. And, uh, man, it was just, it was awesome. Like that was the point there where I was like, okay, I am into this. I am a hundred percent all in. And right. I very, very rarely have touched a rifle since 2008. Um, just but mostly been exclusively nothing but, a, a a bow. Nice. So when did they put the antler restrictions in on, uh, Pennsylvania? Man, I can't even honestly remember. It's, it's been quite a few years now and, the, the herd has been getting better. I mean, you still fight the fact that you have a crazy hunter ratio, you know, hunter per right. mi- square mile ratio. And, um, even still, a lot of people have the mentality around here that if I don't shoot it, someone's going to just waylay it in rifle season. So it's really, really hard unless you have a private parcel to, to basically pass up on an eight point or something that you see, you know, it could be a two and a half year old eight point, which you know, any, anything around here, two and a half year old, uh, I mean, four year olds, a freak half the time around here. It's 
kind of depressing when you see you see the amount of guys shooting really really nice deer they're letting them live but around here man you get something three and a half it's basically everyone's taking it you know and I, i'm guilty of it too i mean i know the deer on my on my leases that i have and I, I pattern them and if i get a chance and i mean with four kids you kind of are limited on time for things and my wedding schedule it's like yep. if you if you had at least a year and a half of experience with a deer it's kind of hard letting it walk knowing that the farmers could shoot it or the neighbors could shoot it and that's i mean that's that's one of my flaws i will say but um i i believe in shooting mature deer i believe in you know shooting nice nice bucks but at the same time uh, if, if i have an animal that comes in and speaks to me and i have experience with and it's a cool scenario and it's i mean uh, that trophy to me whether or not it's a five-year-old buck or a three and a half year old buck that I've watched all year and I have an opportunity at it. That's, that's, that's where it is for me anymore. I, I don't, I try not to let people kind of dictate what I shoot. Um, okay. it's, it's me. If it speaks to my heart and it, and it's, and it's, a, I know I can make the shot and it's a good kill. And ultimately I'm providing a meat, meat for my family, you know, and with four kids, we eat a lot of deer meat. Nice. My kids love it. And I shoot does and, if I have a nice buck comes in and it's at least three and a half, I'm usually taking it depending on what time of the season it is. Okay. So I probably get a lot of flack for that, but that's just, I mean, it goes along with my area. I mean, we're not, we're not growing crazy huge deer out here. There are some freaks that people get occasionally, but at the same time, it just comes down to what speaks to my heart when it comes in. And if I pass on deer too, but at the same time, if something nice walks in and I'm proud of it and it speaks to me, I'm, I'm definitely taking a shot. Right. And at the end of the day, only you or the individual who takes the animal should care what that is, not anybody else. And that's right. what's one thing oh, that, yeah, that's one thing that really kind of picks, pisses me off is when, oh yeah, I'd pass. I, why'd you shoot that? Why'd you shoot that? That it's a young deer. It's like, well, shit, maybe the guy wanted to do it. I mean, who cares what you think? Yep. You know what I mean? So. Right. For sure. Even my buck this year that I shot, I had, I had a, a lot of nice deer on my, on my lease this year. And I've leased probably about 20 minutes from my house. It's uh, one of my good buddies owns a pheasant farm and I lease his property during archery season. And the buck that came in, it was October the 11th. And it was in a tree that my, my four-year-old daughter picked out with me earlier in the season. And we named the tree that we were hunting in and everything. And my wife at the time was eight and a half months pregnant. Oh, and this deer came in and it was standing there 11 yards and I saw it come through and it was a nice deer. It's probably number six on my list of bucks that I would shoot. And I had that thing like, Oh man, what, what are people going to like, man, this isn't the biggest one. People know other deer that are on here, but it's like, you know what? Screw this. This is, this is a chance right here. This, this could be the deer that God is setting through for me right now to provide for my family for the year. If I wait until when rut kicks in, my wife could have the baby and I could be done hunting for the year. Not that right. it's, you know, an excuse to shoot the first deer that you see, but at the same time, that deer in that tree at that time was the deer I was supposed to take, and I did, and I do not regret it one bit. It's probably three and a half year old eight point, had real nice G2s on it, and nice. I shot it out of the tree that my daughter picked for me, and it was, it was just, it was meant to happen, and I did it. So, what did your no daughter regret. say? Not what even did... one, not even one letter. <laughs> <laughs> what What did your daughter say when you came home and told her, "Hey, Daddy shot this deer out of the tree you picked out." Oh, she was pumped. She, she is like my little tomboy girl. She's super small, super cute little girly girl, but she likes to go out with daddy. And nice. 
the tree that I shot it out of was, uh, it was called the PP tree. And the reason for that was I was actually, <laughs> I was hanging the set and I had screw and steps in and I was probably 25 feet up in the air. I pulled the stand up. <clears throat> I had my lineman's belt on. I was locked in the tree. I'm set the stand and that little dork tried to climb up the first two steps and she slipped off the one and caught her pants like by the crotch on the bottom step. Yeah. and was freaking out because she was like hanging there by her pants. She wasn't like, it was only a foot off the ground, but she was stuck. Yeah. So I came down and she was like screaming, screaming and crying. She thought she heard her pee pee. So, <laughs> uh, you know, of course, after making sure everything was okay and realized she just ripped a hole in her pants, I asked her what we should name this tree. And she said, we should call it the pee pee tree. So I just thought it was hilarious. So I actually did a Facebook live post coming out of the woods that day. And I asked her what we should name that tree on the Facebook live post. And she said the pee pee tree. And I about lost it because I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> So every time I'd go, I'd pick her up from preschool or drop her to preschool, and I knew I was hunting that night, I'd ask her, what tree should Daddy go to tonight? She said, uh, you should go to the pee-pee tree, Dad. And every night it was the same answer. So it was like my third or fourth sit in that stand. It was a good set. It was a really good set, and uh, I knew the deer were traveling through there from the pre- previous season. And I went up there and shot it, and I called her and told her I shot at the pee-pee tree, and she was she was just pumped. So it was just funny because Mark – Kenyon actually did a little spot with me for one of his Sitka stories, and it, it was funny that it's still dubbed as the PP tree, and just it's a, it cracks me up. So, so you mentioned you, you know you were doing a lot of public ground hunting. Why did you yeah. why did you transfer or why did you decide to get a lease? Mostly because uh, of the, I mean the deer numbers dropped off. They were selling so many doe tags. Um, in, in my WMU, uh, unit here in PA and the deer numbers are going down. And so the public land, there's a big track behind my house, like I said before, but you'd go back there and I grew up in that, I grew up in the stage in rifle season where you could go back there and see 30, 40 deer together, you know, and it was just small bucks and tons of those. And toward the end of it, when I got out of public public land, basically and hunting leases, um, you were just, you, you could hunt all season and maybe see one or two deer. Yeah. And it just got really, really frustrating. And I had friends that had properties that I could get to and drive to and leave stands up all year long and scout without worrying about people ripping trail cameras off and cutting straps on tree stands. Like it's cutthroat around here, man. If someone has a spot and you go and you put a stand in there, they'll cut halfway through a strap. So if you're not locked in going up there, you get up in your stand, you step into it and all of a sudden both straps break loose and you're now paralyzed because some douchebag you know, didn't want you hunting in this spot. And it was just one of those things where it was a security thing for me. Um, it was a safety thing. I didn't have to worry about losing tons of money every year and people ripping off my trail cameras or shooting them with shotguns. And it just got old, man. It got old real quick. Wow. And I'm now getting to the point where I get back into, I want to hunt public land. You know, I, I know there's good spots and people have kind of fallen off on hunting these state forest areas because of that whole connotation and basically the fact that they get screwed with a lot. And everyone's looking for leases now. So kind of open that back up to public land is starting to be good again, you know, or state land is going to be good again because people are looking for leases. And if they can't find a lease, they're going out of state. They'd rather go and, you know, pay for a week hunt somewhere out of state and see nice deer rather than go back on public land and think that someone's going to cut their straps again. And it's just, it's more work than people want to put into it anymore. They just, they want the instant gratification of climbing the stand the first morning and shooting a 150 inch deer, you know? Right. So, um, it's opening back up to that now, but for a while there, it just was a total turn off. And I had friends that owned property and they did an archery hunt. So they would let me come in and, and hunt. It. So that's kind of why I 
originally switched over to hunting leases. Have you, have you ever caught anybody <laughs> trying to uh, mess with your stuff, like cut your tree stand straps or steal your trail cameras or anything like that? I've never caught people doing it, but I've had experiences where I uh, we have a camp down in Huntington, Pennsylvania, and it's by a big lake, and we get on the first day of rifle every year. And the one year my cousin and I, I was just I was already tagged out, and I was going to film him in rifle season. We climbed up in this tree. We both had climbers, so I climbed up first, set up the camera. He climbed up underneath me with his climber, and like 10 minutes before daybreak, this old guy walks up through and sits 20 yards underneath of us under a hemlock tree. And I was flashing lights and whistling to him, and he had no beans about it. He sat in his spot. He hunted that tree every year for since he was, you know, 10 years old or whatever. And within five minutes, the deer came crashing on off the uh, top of the hill into the ravine. He shot at it, missed, and then basically just started, you know, yelling at us and cursing at us. And we were saying stuff to him because, we, I mean, we were, we're stuck in climbers. We can't get down and move. He comes in and shoots a buck, you know, the first day right in front of each of us. And it's just like, man, if, you don't, if you're not careful, there's some weirdos out there, man, that would have no problem ripping around <laughs> off at you, you know, over a freaking deer, you know, it's, right. it's so it's, it's, it's just how Pennsylvania is, man. It's, it's depressing at times. It's scary, you know, cause there's times where you run into some people that shouldn't be in the woods with a rifle, but they've right. done it for 30 years and, you know, anger issues and get to tread lightly. So I've never found people that have personally messed with my stuff or caught them in the act, but you just have the guys that don't care. I mean, that's right. their spot and you're hunting 20 yards away. That's, that's your problem. You know, you need to move. It's my spot. So yeah, I know, uh, that gets old and scary. Right. Uh, Mark and other guys on social media are like, Hey man, why don't you, you know, you should, you, you've grown up in Iowa. One of the greatest States for whitetails and yes, I'm blessed. And, and they're like, Hey, why don't you, you know, spend a season and go to Michigan or come to Pennsylvania or New York and, and try to hunt out here. I'm just like, and then you hear stories like that, and I'm just like, uh, no, thank you. I'll uh, I'll stick with yeah. my Iowa, you know, my Iowa ground, and uh, fight the, the the three other hunters I have on my 400 acres. You know, there's there's four of us on 400 acres, and uh, I gotta I gotta fight there. I just I'm just lucky to be in a state where there's probably a million less hunters. So uh, that's yeah. <laughs> that that's a good thing. Yes, for sure. So I want to talk about this short video you did and I watched it and it is awesome. It's about moose hunting. Okay. Why don't you yes. fill us in? Um, I guess of all the Western game animals that you could go, go hunt. Why did you decide to go moose hunting and, and document a moose hunt? Uh, I'd say the biggest thing for me was I just, for some reason, always loved, it was always between like a moose and an elk, but moose for some reason just always had me for some reason, just, just seeing the size of the animals, just kind of clumsy, but yet I don't even really know how to describe it without making them sound like a dumb animal because they're not, but they're just such a big, gigantic, majestic creature that just basically has full reign over anything, you know, and just. I don't know, just, it was different. I mean, you see, you can go on YouTube and search for an elk hunt and you see tons and tons and tons of, you know, good quality elk footage, but at the same time you'd go on and look for a moose hunt and they're all basically some 
you know, you see a crappy video of some dude calling and it comes into three yards and they shoot it and then it charges them. And I was just like, man, that's a, that's a cool animal. Like I want to, I've always liked the moose. Um, I've heard their, their meat was ridiculously amazing and it was kind of something that I could chase, you know, that was something I would never be able to kill here in Pennsylvania. Right. And, uh, uh I just loved, I just loved how they, the, the, the noises they make, the, how, people, you know, say they smell like a bull moose. I, I wanted to experience that. I wanted to see what a moose smelled like. I, I wanted to smell that. I wanted to just, just experience that. And it's something that always just stuck with me that if I ever had a chance to do it, uh, that's the, the first animal that I would save money for and, you know, go try to hunt because it would be so awesome to take an animal that big with a bow and arrow. So where and that's kind of what rolled into to that hunt. Where was uh, the hunt take place at? Where did the hunt take place? The hunt was up in uh, Edmonton in Alberta, okay. and I have a good friend, Craig Temple, that is uh, affiliated with, with Sitka through the Gore Hunting Tech program with me, and we've been friends for quite a few years through that program. And he knew that I never hunted out of state. So as someone that makes hunting films and does certain things in the industry and does some things for companies, it was kind of funny that out of all the states, I live in PA, and I do hunting videos. It was just like... Wow, you need to quit because of all, I mean, you, have, you can shoot a buck and a doe if you get lucky a year, and they're small. So uh, he told me we we talked, and he said you should come up for moose hunt sometime. I'm like, dude, I would never be able to afford that. He's like, well, we do this hunter host program up here, and I can basically, as a resident, I can sign up for this hunter host program. You apply for it, go through all this red tape, and basically, if everything goes through, you can come up and buy an over the counter tag and hunt bull moose with me oh nice and i was like dude honestly i have i have three kids you know fourth one was coming or whatever and i was like i there's no way in heck i can afford that he's like dude the tag is like 350 bucks american and i'm like what he's like yeah man he's like through the hunter host program i buy my license to be a host you apply if you get through it's a 350 dollar over-the-counter tag you fly up here you can live with me for the week and we'll hunt together and try to get a moose Oh, nice. and i was like you've got to be kidding me so I mean, he invited me up and I went up and did this hunt with him. And you know, I mean, it was crazy. I think the entire hunt, including my airfare, the tag, um, buying food when I was up there and getting my cape, 80 pounds of meat and my skull plate back home cost me $980. Wow. That's really cheap. So, yeah. And for me, like I, I can't, I mean, I have kids and I'm building a house and all that fun stuff. And for me to be able to drop 10 grand on a hunt is just not going to happen anytime Amen. soon. And for, for me to do that, I mean, my, my family is my priority. I'm never going to take a hunt. That's going to jeopardize the financial stability of my family, even though I wanted to do it. And I was like, you know what? I'm, this is, this is my sign here. I'm going to, I'm going to try to make this happen. And we did, dude, it was ridiculous. Totally just a crazy, awesome hunt and a great experience. And I'm just so blessed to know Craig and for him to actually extend that offer to me to come up and do that with him. That's cool, man. Uh, we actually had a podcast of a guy from, oh man, I don't even know where he was from. I want to say Texas or New Mexico or something like that. And uh, he had a buddy who lives in um, in Alberta and did a mule deer hunt and elk hunt. I think you can do it every three years. You can come up and be a part of that. Yes. Uh, that yes. host program. Once every three years. Yep. Yeah. So that's kind of, mm-hmm. that's a, that's a really cool thing. So I need to start looking for friends in Alberta. Yeah, exactly. Just, just start buying stock in maple syrup and find some, <laughs> some land up there. And... <laughs> so how, was it the very first year that you, uh, 
that you applied that you got in or did it take you a couple years before you actually signed the, you know, signed the deal and was able to get up there? No, I, I started it that year, basically earlier in the year, sending all the paperwork and applied for it and had to get stuff notarized here and sent up to him and their government had to approve it. And it was basically a couple months process, but it, it went, went right through. So I had to apply for my, uh, like a wildlife identification number and stuff like that. And then once that was awarded, it was, it was a go, it was go time. So nice. it was super crazy. And for me to never hunt in or out of the state of Pennsylvania before and have my first hunt to be a Canadian moose hunt was just awesome. Right. Um, definitely, definitely a cool experience. And it, it was really weird too, cause not a lot of people, I mean, like I said before, you see a moose hunt on YouTube or whatever, and it's basically a guy, you know, on the ground calling and, pushing through the brush and they come charging through real close yardage. And we actually hunt, we hunted them like whitetails. We hunted them out of tree stands and Craig would call and he ran trail cameras through different properties and stuff like that. And basically you hunted them like whitetails. You patterned them, you found out when they were coming through and you called them into the stand. So I actually shot my bull. It was uh, day six in the morning. We had trail cam pictures of it the night before we checked on the spot is on public land, uh, hiked about a mile and a half back in took the trail camera, had a nice bull in there the morning, that same morning at four o'clock in the morning and hunted that evening in the set and nothing came in, but we heard some crash and I mean, these things are so loud. It was probably a good thousand yards away. And next morning we came back in and seven thirty in the morning, Craig let out the first set of calls and it came busting right up through, made a scrape, walked in seven yards underneath me, caught wind, basically checked the wind it licked its nose and now it's already a full draw. Craig was on it with the camera and it just turned to its left, like right foot over its left foot to turn out of it and opened its whole right side up to me. And I shot it at seven yards and, uh, hit it basically back, back right long, went through the side of its heart and came out its front left bicep. It ran 70 yards up on the hill and stood there for three and a half minutes and then just crashed. And it was just that quick. Like we didn't, we hardly saw many moose before that we were hunting a, a private parcel he had and just, figured we go check this public spot because the moose weren't kind of active in the, in the private spot and ended up shooting that bull on, on public land on morning six of our, you know, eight day hunt that we had. Wow. That's crazy. Now. Yeah, it was cool. Talk to me a little bit about, I mean, my very first out of state hunt was to Nebraska for a, a deer. It could be a whitetail or a mule deer. Um, and I bought a tag for an antelope as well, all archery. And I was just blown away just because of a different, the different scenery. Talk to us a little bit about what your feelings and, and the experience of hunting a completely foreign land for the first out of state hunt, what that was like. It was, it was just crazy walking in and just seeing how thick the terrain was. And there's like this undergrowth that kind of just stops at four feet and it's just these little leafy saplings and then just beautiful like white birch trees and just the the leaves were golden i mean back home it was still basically end of summer here so everything was greened up but there kind of the temperature started switching a little bit the leaves started turning and just seeing these gigantic pole stage white birch trees and just the yellow leaves just popping i mean it was it was beautiful it was, it was completely different than anything i've ever done before and uh man it was just it was definitely an eye-opener just how cool it is to know that you hop on a plane you know one layover somewhere and within five hours you're in a completely different environment that is something you've never seen or experienced before. And as as a filmmaker for me, it was just cool to be able to 
kind of see through clean eyes. Like I've never experienced that before. So it was a different, different realm that I got to open basically to, to film and Craig filmed with me and did an amazing job. And it was just, it was fun to just basically have a breath of fresh air and a, whole, a brand new clean slate start on new eyes on a new area. It was, it was awesome. So kind of going back to the hunt now, you know, you, you did this work, you, you were, you come to full draw on this moose that is probably four times the size of any whitetail you've ever killed. What, Oh yeah. What, what was going through your mind at at that point? Like, okay, I flew up here, I'm going on a moose hunt, but now you're within range of an actual moose. Yeah, it did. It was crazy. Cause we just talked for like the day, probably the day and a half before that we weren't seeing any really good moose activity, anything that we could see to shoot. And we basically had a little agreement like, man, this is awesome, regardless of whether we kill something or not, just to experience this and for me to be up here and do this and for him to extend this offer me was just amazing. And basically it was like, okay, man, this could not work. This might not work for us. So if that's the case in three years when I can apply for this tag again, Craig was like, basically, I'll bring you back up and we'll kind of, you know, go at it again. And when we started hearing that crash and and we saw the moose and it was coming in and we had one game trail that came right underneath of us at seven yards. And when that thing stopped and made a scrape and Craig was on, I just told him, I said, just make sure you hit record and just stay zoomed out because in the heat of the moment, you try zooming back and forth. Like, I don't care for that animal to be tight in the frame. I'd rather have it wide open and see me at full draw with this thing that close. And when it stepped in and I'm at full draw, I was at full draw for probably a good minute. And even in the video, you can watch, like I was, I was so peacefully calm, which is crazy because it's, it's an animal I've wanted to take for as long as I've been bow hunting basically. And to have it there at seven yards and checking the wind and getting nervous, I should have been shaking like a leaf. But for some reason, I was just calm. I already had the pin buried. And I was settled in, looking through the peep. Everything was lined up. And I just knew the second that he presented that shot that opens, opened him up broadside, I would take the shot. And, I mean, as soon as I shoot, Craig actually, as it turned, Craig went to basically give a, a grunt call to stop it. And I shoot the exact second he makes the grunt call. So it sounds like the moose actually made a noise, but it's actually Craig behind the camera that tried to stop it. And I was already right there. We both had the same time, like, okay, this is when you need to shoot. It's like one, two, three. He grunted. I shot at the same time. And that went off. And it was so cold that morning. The second he made his first jump, I saw a puff of, uh, puff of steam come out of his uh, the, the entrance hole, basically. And I knew I smoked it. And it basically ran and pushed down two two or three little like three inch round trees like that were standing there just knocked them to the ground and ran across this clearing and i was like well everything i've heard of these things you have to try to put as many of them as you can because they're a tough animal so i'm reaching around to grab another arrow and it walks up in the timber about 70 yards and then it kind of just struck me like wow i think i literally just killed this animal i i basically this all lined up i mean it happened that close yeah. it was a good shot and Oh man, this is, this is awesome. And uh, we're talking back and forth and interviewing and Craig turns the camera around on himself and he's talking to the camera. And as he's talking to the camera, basically explaining what just happened, I hear the moose hit the ground and that's when I started shaking. I just, I lost, <laughs> I just, I was so calm that whole entire time. And I just started shaking uncontrollably. My legs are shaking. My arms are shaking. And I was, I was almost like, basically I was fighting tears because it was just, it was such a, such an awesome experience. And I was just so blessed to be there in that moment. And right. I mean, I, I know with that animal, I, I put a good shot on it. It didn't suffer any more than it had to. And just to hear 
that sound of that gigantic animal just hitting the ground and knowing that an arrow that's what an inch and eighth broadhead just cut through its vitals and ended its life within three minutes. Um, it was kind of just a, a crazy experience, just completely overwhelming me emotionally. So you get down on, you get down on the tree stand and you, you walk up to this thing. What, what's the first thing that's going through your mind when you're walking up on, I don't know, a, you know, 1200, 2000 pounds. I don't know what a moose really weighs. Something way bigger than a whitetail, obviously. What's the first thing that's going through your head when you go and touch it for the first time? Well, whenever I, when it walked in and I shot, I, I knew that it was a big animal, but even still 20 feet in the air, it doesn't seem that big. Like you're just in the zone. You kind of know what you need to do. And you saw it, you know, like, well, it's a big animal. When I walked up to that thing the first time and saw it, I just kept saying to Craig, like, oh my gosh, dude, I cannot believe how big this thing is. Yeah. And like to put it in perspective, whenever, basically, whenever I was getting the animal out and trying to remove its lungs and heart, I was literally sitting inside of it with my chin resting on its sternum and my arms as far as I could reach up in to try to cut the windpipe to pull the diaphragm and everything out. Yeah. And I couldn't get my hands up any further than its lungs. And I have a pretty big wingspan. And for me, like to, I mean, just, just to see that animal, I mean, laying there and knowing that that little arrow basically took down that animal. It was, just, it was crazy. And then walking up and trying to pick its head up and, just, I mean, I'm a whitetail, I'm a Pennsylvania whitetail hunter who's maybe, you know, have on the wall, might be 115 inches, my biggest buck. And I'll admit yeah. that they're just, that's a, that's a good deer around here for, for me. And to, to grab something that's 42 inches wide with, you know, 14 inch, like stickers off of it and big fronts and paddles. It was just like, oh my goodness. It was just, it was such a crazy, uh, just a crazy moment that I could attach myself at that moment to that right. enormity of animal and, and the enormity of my decision that my decision to release that arrow ended this gigantic thing's life. And it was just breathtaking at first, but then it was like, wow, I got to get this thing out of the woods now. Right. And that's when the fun started, man, like breaking that thing down. I mean, PA, you basically drive your side by side up to it, you throw it in the bed of the side by side, take it home to the truck, get it back and skin it in your garage. And here like, we, I shot at seven thirty in the morning and I don't think we got back to the house till about 10 o'clock that night. Wow. Uh, it was, we had to pack everything out. We had to quarter it and pack it out. And uh, it was my first time basically packing an animal out. So having uh, from the hip to the knee of a, of a moose and the front shoulder and the front leg, and then the last load was basically the head, uh, the skull plate, and the cape. It was, I mean, that was the most physically exhausting thing I think I've ever done. And wow. there's one point where we had to climb up. We was in the bottom of this bull, and we had to climb up out through all that big, you know, four-foot-tall undergrowth. And Craig was snapping pictures up through, and we got to this bull we had to walk up out of to get to a, a trail. And I said, okay, put the camera away because once I start up over this hill, man, I need you to push me because there was so much weight. When I would start hiking up, if I'd get lazy a little bit and stand up straight, it would just pull me backwards. So Craig would have to grab my pack and just push me forward so I wouldn't fall backwards on him. Wow. And it was just, it was, it was nuts, man. It was, it was the coolest and craziest and most exhausting thing I've ever done. Now, I take it you're going to try to do that again someday. Oh, I would, I would love to. And the thing was with the hunter host program, the only thing that I could get my meat across the border with was my tag. So it had to be with me. I couldn't ship the meat across the border and I shot it with a day and a half left before I flew out. So we butchered everything ourselves and we could only get as much meat as we could frozen enough to get on the plane. So 
I was only able to bring about 80 pounds of meat home, which ended up being both back straps, one tenderloin, and a bunch of round steaks out of the one back quarter, basically. But I donated the rest of the meat. So I I didn't feel bad about it. And, I mean, the meat is amazing. But my wife even told me she's not real big into eating venison. She likes it if it's cooked exactly right, but she'd rather not eat it. And she loves it so much. She's basically like, if you ever do this again, basically fly to somewhere, rent a vehicle, drive north, <laughs> and then bring it across the border because you need to bring all this stuff home. Right. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, but, yeah, shit, that'll feed a family yeah, cool. for almost a year, I bet. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Well, my kids love it, dude. <laughs> my kids are like little carnivores. They sit there <laughs> cooking medium-rare steaks, and there's blood dripping out of the corners of their mouth, and they're just ripping moose apart. They, nice. they think every time I make something that's, that's wild now, it's, it has to be the moose. So they, nice. they love it, and it's, it's some of the best meat I've ever had in my life. All right, so kind of transitioning from this exhausting moose hunt, you know, it was very satisfying for you, but, a, you know, transitioning to kind of a fly fishing film that you've made. Talk yeah. to us about the, the story behind this fly fishing film. Uh, the fly fishing film, and um, I am no expert fly fisher by any means. Um, I have my wife's cousin, actually. It's her husband. He's a good friend that lives about an hour from me. His name is Dave Zelensky, and he builds wooden drift boats. And um, we've known we've known each other for a while, but never, like, Personally, it was, it was basically like you see him at Christmas or whatever, and you know that it's, you know, Tab's cousin's husband or whatever. And he messaged me one day on Instagram and he lives an hour from me. We're basically family and never really hung out. And he was like, hey, man, I saw you're, you know, fishing for little brook trout behind your house and stuff like that. We want to come fly fishing sometime. And I'm like, well, I'm not that good. So basically don't make fun of me, but I'm looking for some mentorship, basically. <laughs> so we went out in state college, PA, and did some fly fishing together and just hit it off and he said this year there's this cicada hatch happening basically in Pennsylvania. And every 17 years, there's a periodical emergence of the cicada and uh, they're in different broods. And basically the cicada is this gigantic winged bug and it's annoying and they just make so much noise, but they basically live underground for 17 years and the 17th year of emergence, they basically crawl up out of the ground. They crawl about four feet up on trees and vegetation and they harden and they shed their exoskeleton and basically mate. They lay their eggs, and they die, and the larva falls out of the limbs, back down to the ground, and starts to cycle over again. And a lot of people are like, well, that's not big, not really a big deal, but it is because they're, they come out by the millions, like millions and millions of bugs. And it's a complete feeding frenzy and protein boost in the food chain for everything from small animals to fish because these things are such clumsy flyers that they fly – they live in wet areas and like on creek banks and river banks and stuff like that. And they fall off because they can't fly that well. And the fish just go nuts. So we figured on like, let's make a film out of this because it only happens once every 17 years and it's right in our backyard. And everyone thinks about going out West to, you know, chase Browns and Montana or whatever. And I mean, we have this crazy happening right here in our backyard so Dave built wooden drift boats, and that's not really a big thing around here either. And we have some some local rivers and stuff like that that you can launch. And we planned this this float trip for this the periodical cicada hatch, and it was it was crazy. Um, there was four of us in two wooden drift boats, and we fished 24 miles for three days. And the first day we ended up catching like 24 to 26 uh, trout in colder water, like nice trout, all on top water cicada flies. 
And then the second two days we floated like on the Southern end of this, of this uh, river and caught carp on top water flies. Oh, and we nice. did like, I think 36 carp. Yeah, dude. And everyone thinks like carps is junk fish, but when you get a carp eating top water flies, it's ridiculous. It's like spot and stalking. Like basically we'd be rowing. You'd see a dorsal fin pop up and you'd see lips coming up out and eat the cicada to hit the water. You'd drop anchor, cast out, keep it drag free. And when a, when a carp picks its head up out of the water, to eat whatever's on top they can't see so it goes all by feeling and and you know the current and everything so you would cast out you'd see the fish uh, circle down around line up with the current and you just see lips come up out of the water just munching and then all of a sudden they would hit fly would go in their mouth and they'd drag down to the bottom and you'd fight them for 10 to 15 minutes and it was it was super cool we were catching some really big carp all on top water flies and it was I, i didn't think at the time like of how I didn't really realize how epic of an adventure this was being in our own backyard and catching this many fish, big fish on top water, cicada flies, especially carp was, but afterwards it kind of hit me like, wow, this is real, something really, really special. And I'm really, really glad that we got to document it the way that we did. Awesome. Awesome. So, uh, you caught a variety of trout and carp, any other fish on that trip? Uh, I caught some smallies, but it was mostly, mostly trout, smallmouth and carp. Okay, cool. I yeah. I'll tell you what, my favorite fish to catch with a rod and reel is a is a smallmouth bass. Yeah, I, I they fight like They're a crazy son of a man. bitch. I love them. Oh yeah. So, you know, do you have you know from your film making side of things, do you have any other adventures? I guess that you want to document any any other western hunts or even east coast uh east coast events that you're that you're looking or planning for for your next film yeah i have a pretty cool film that's going to be in the works here this year um with the same guy actually dave that builds the wooden drift boats um planned for this year and my biggest thing with films is there's so many films that you can go out and watch and there's there's a ton of great filmmakers that are doing awesome things but at the end of the day basically in pennsylvania if you don't have a good story behind it it's not really worth watching because honestly i don't mean that in a condescending way but we don't have crazy big deer you know so for me i like to try to find things that are that are basically something fresh or something that basically needs to be addressed that i feel personally in the outdoor industry that kind of I mean, let's face it, this is a big industry of look what I can do, look what I did, right. check out this big buck. If it wasn't for this product, I wouldn't be able to do this. Right. And I'm more about the story underneath of that. Um, this year we're planning a really cool film project with Dave. Dave is a trad-only hunter. only hunted trad his entire life. Oh, nice. And, uh, and I am a, I'm a compound hunter, you know, tree stand compound hunter. And basically we're, we're basically going to switch roles this year. And he is going to hunt with a compound out of a tree stand and I'm going to hunt in wool clothing on the ground with a trad bow. And I'm going to basically struggle through it, but I'm excited about it because with this, with this industry and even myself, I'm super materialistic with things. Like I like to have the best stuff every year and new products and try this out and, you know, strive to only shoot the things that I believe in. But at times I like, get really clouds, the real motive behind things. And I, I, I feel it this year with going trad for my Pennsylvania stuff. Anyways, 
it's going to be a way for me to kind of leave the materialistic things behind, showcase that, you know, you can go out with a stick and string. I know a lot of guys are hunting trad now. It's, it's, a, it's a big thing that people are kind of revolving around to, but I think that's half the reason because people are so tired of like, man, I need to throw this $400 sight on with a $200 rest and $200 for a dozen arrows. And, you know, I just want to basically feel connected more along the lines of me being closer proximity with less of a fighting chance and not have to think about that. Just strip it down and go back to basically the birth of the sport and um, basically just relying on practice and primitive gear and trying to accomplish the same thing and just kind of rejuvenate my spirit and get myself out of that materialistic mindset for a little bit and know that I have a stick and a string and whatever I can get to conceal myself enough the way that they used to do it, you know, 40, 50, even a hundred years ago. Nice. Um, and make it work that way. But the other thing too, is I, I'm, I'm not, I've never hunted trad before. And I know with, uh, the trad thing, like it's probably how compound guys feel about people that shoot crossbows sometimes. And it's just a stupid thing. However, whatever you want to use to kill something is completely fine with me. I don't, I don't see a problem with it. I might not agree with it, but I don't, I mean, that's your prerogative. And yep. there's, I, the, I feel that the trad guys sometimes think that the compound guys are basically our version of the, of the, uh, crossbow guys. They're taken <laughs> away from the purists and, and you know, the primitive, the, the breath of fresh air that it is to hunt an animal with a, with a, a real bow, basically, in their right. eyes. Right. And, and I'm not saying that the V-Con is sending to either end of that spectrum, but I want to show that that guy that's hunted trad his whole life might take something awesome out of hunting with a compound out of a tree stand that he's never done before, just as much as I will appreciate being in closer proximity with less of a fighting chance at a deer on the ground. Right. You know, right. so... I think it's a cool project. Um, I'm not guaranteeing success with it, but I think it's just a piece that will be very, very cool to show the flip side of each of our personal preferences in hunting. You know, there might be something that I take away from trad hunting that I love that I never would have experienced before because I didn't want to shoot a recurve or a, or a longbow. And there might be something that Dave loves about hunting out of a stand now wearing camouflage and you know, shooting a compound bow and being able to extend his range out. So it'll be a cool, it'll be a cool trial and error thing this year that goes on and something that'll be kind of neat for both of us to experience, I think. Yeah. I'm definitely looking forward to the uh, finished product on, uh, on that film. Well, I tell you what, man, before we uh, split here, why don't you tell, you know, if people are interested in seeing the moose hunt uh, film and your fly fishing film, where can they go to see that? Okay, they can go to, uh, it's actually guidefitter.com slash videos. <clears throat> I worked with Guidefitter. Uh, there's a, the, the guy that runs all their uh, content stuff, actually, his name's Tyler Hawk. He's a good buddy of mine, and uh, he's a producer for a lot of things, and he runs the Guidefitter uh, content stuff now. And both of those films were basically, um, you're able to view them through the Guidefitter website. So guidefitter.com slash videos. The fly fishing film is called Brood V or Brood 5, which is the name of the brood that we were chasing for the fishing film. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, the moose hunt is uh, entitled Opportunity Knox, and they're both both viewable through the Guide Fitter uh, videos tab. Nice. Well, Mr. Wade James, I appreciate very much the last hour that you spent with me. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast, man. 
Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And man, best of luck to you this year and all of your endeavors you guys take on. Just want to say thanks to Wade for coming on the podcast and BSing with us for a little while today. Before I get into the rest of my thank yous, hopefully by now you are familiar with what is happening out west. All right. There is a law that has been introduced or a bill that has been introduced to become law by a congressman out of Utah. This this bill is H.R. 621. And basically what the Republican Party or the federal government is trying to do is to unload 3.1 or 3.3 million acres of federal public ground that you and I are basically the owners of. And uh, basically they want to get that off the books. Now, what you need to do is to educate yourself first and foremost about what this is and why you should support this. All right. So everybody needs to go to keep it public dot org and you can find a lot of information about this movement and what is going on there you can also go to backcountryhunters.org and you can find out a lot of information about this movement uh, as well and why this is important for all sportsmen to or I should say all outdoorsmen to get behind because the federal government is trying to take basically steal public land and get rid of it and basically sell it to the highest bidder, which means you, me, our children, uh, future generations will not have access to this ground. Again, H.R. 621 is the bill. And you guys, please do your research. And if you support this, next podcast that I do, we're going to start you know we're going to start organizing and we're going to start going on these little uh these little missions so to speak like uh, maybe commenting on certain individuals facebook pages or instagram uh profiles and and stuff like that it's time to take action on something like this but first we have to educate ourselves i've just given you some uh i've just given you guys some uh, resources to go educate yourself And then it's time to take action. And how you do that is you call your congressmen, you call your senators, you call your state representatives, and you tell them that you are strongly opposed to H.R. 621 and uh, everything that has to do with it. So the only thing I want to close on here is we have to keep it public. All right. Now, huge shout out to Exodus Trail Cameras. Huge shout out to DeerLab.com. Huge shout out to our new partner, Ripcord Arrow Rests. And uh, thanks to each and every one of you who make this podcast possible. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Check me out on Twitter. Check me out on Facebook. Check me out on Instagram. Please go to iTunes and leave a review. And uh, for the next couple weeks, we're going to change it up here. All right. If you love nature, you love the outdoors, and you use public land, or heck, you may not even use public land. You may know someone who uses public land. 
or just the thought of having wild places makes you happy, just remember to keep it public.